Job was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Job went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom, and Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimi, son of Gera, the Benjamite, Benjamite from Baharam, hurried down with the man of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Zeba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I your servant know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. 
Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. You, uh, you may recall me telling the story of Shamil some time ago, a Russian revolutionary who lived in the late 1800s. The story of Shamil is a true story that illustrates love and justice, which we learned about last week. We're thinking about love and justice and how they can work together last week. Shamil was trying to overthrow the Tsars in Russia in the 1800s and he led a band of revolutionaries and with them they took their families. They were constantly on the move and as such lived in tents and they had to ration their food. One night Shamil's lieutenant came to him and told him that someone had stolen food from the supplies. Shamil was furious and ordered everybody to assemble in the main tent. He told everyone that he knew food had had been taken by someone. This was a serious crime. Anyone caught would publicly receive 30 lashes, 30 whips. Well, before long, Shamil's lieutenant came to him again and told him that the food had been stolen again, but they caught the thief. Shamil was enraged, but also delighted that they'd caught the criminal. But not so delighted when he discovered that the perpetrator was his elderly, frail mother. Shamil had a dilemma. The just thing to do would be to deliver the 30 lashes to his mother for her crime, as he promised he would. But the loving thing to do for his elderly and frail mother would be to spare her this punishment. So what was he to do? Well, he wanted to see justice done, but he loved his mum. He knew that if she was whipped, it would probably kill her, such was her age. Well, the horrible time came and his mother was led out and she was strung up to the post to be whipped But to the surprise of his people, Shamil took off his shirt and he covered his mother over and then ordered that he receive the 30 lashes in her place. The price was paid, justice was seen, done, and love was shown at the same time. It's a beautiful illustration and it reveals the loving heart of our Lord Jesus. He too was innocent And he, too, was willing to receive the punishment for another. And we were reminded about this last week. God does not allow sins to go unpunished. He's a just God. But in love for us, he pours out his wrath and punishment on his beloved son in the place of those whose trust is in him. Jesus faced the wrath for the sin of all God's people in that one moment upon the cross. But he did it willingly. And as such, he simultaneously showed his great love for us by receiving the just punishment that we deserve and he saw that justice was done. Love and justice are displayed most powerfully and perfectly at the cross of Christ. Now David, King David in our story finds himself in a similar dilemma. 
love and justice need to be done. But in human relationships, it's always incredibly difficult. We learned last week that a man named Absalom had committed treason by raising up an army and driving King David out of his royal throne room and out of his royal city into the wilderness. God's anointed king, she's away, God's anointed king had been driven out of his own kingdom by this man named Absalom. And the punishment for such treason, (laughs) she's fast, the punishment for such treason is death. But we also learned that Absalom is David's son. It's like the Jamoan show or something. (laughs) (laughs) Absalom has committed this crime against the king, but he's the king's son as well. So David's got this dilemma. And this week, we kind of see what's going to... what We learned last week what became of Absalom... But what's David going to do about it is what we're kind of looking at this week. And then what does that mean for us? What's David going to do? Last week we learned that in the thick of battle, so the battle was happening between David's men and Absalom's men, and in the thick of battle, while riding his mule through the forest, Absalom's luscious flowing hair somehow got caught in a tree. It's kind of comical. So he's hanging from this tree... And the mule rides away, and one of the men sees it, but David had promised all the men to be gentle with Absalom. Joab, the commander of the army, says, blow that, I'm not going to be gentle with this guy, he's a traitor. Absalom, uh, Joab goes and finds Absalom hanging from the tree by his luscious hair, and we're told in chapter 18, if you want to look in your Bibles, chapter 18, verse 14, we're told that Joab stuck three javelins in his heart. That'll do it every time. Now, I find verse 15 a little amusing, but perhaps because my sense of humour is a bit warped. It says in verse 15, after Joab had stuck three javelins in Absalom's heart, the armour bearers struck him and killed him. I kind of thought the javelins would have got the job done, but apparently, no, the armour bearers are the ones that killed him. I thought the javelins would have did it, but no. The armour bearers are the ones that kill him. They struck the fatal blow. For Joab... Justice is done, because this is the traitor. This is the guy who deserves death, and and this is a great victory for Job. He's a commander of the army. He's saved the kingdom. He's defeated this traitor who's risen up an army against the king. He, He ought to be, you would think, and he thinks for sure, treated like an absolute hero in the eyes of David. But how will David take the news? And that's kind of where we're up to in the story. So the end of chapter 18, start of chapter 19, we have this long section dedicated uh, to David's reaction. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 18. So news has been sent to David of the outcome of the battle uh, by two men, one of them a Cushite. This Cushite arrives, he says, My lord the king, hear the good news. The lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The battle is won. The king asks the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? You can see the king's heart right there. He's been driven in the wilderness, out of his kingdom. His people are, you know, afraid and driven out of the wilderness. But the first question he asks, 
Is my son okay? The Cushite replies very diplomatically, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, no, he's not okay. He's dead, and rightly so. David's response is one of the most sad, kind of gut-wrenching moments in the Bible. The king was shaken. He went, he didn't care about the victory. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, he's distraught. That's all he can think about. So great is the love of the father for his son that he wishes he could have traded places. A feeling that many parents have when our kids are sick and suffering or in pain. We wish we could trade places, let alone facing the horror of the death of a child. Well, Joab, understandably, I guess, is furious at David's sadness. And we've got this tension here, haven't we? Joab is just 100% justice. He wants justice. And David is 100% love. He doesn't care about the justice. He cares about his son. So we've got this tension. And how will it be resolved? Joab says, it's pretty brutal. He's talking to a king. Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you'd be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. It's brutal, but there's truth in there, isn't there? His people have fought for him and bled for him, and no doubt many died for him, and there's no thanks from the king. There's no triumph, there's no victory, there's no raising up Joab as the wonderful commander of, of the army who's won this magnificent battle. There's just tears and weeping. But we can sympathise with David too. Joab rightly points out, if they hadn't fought and bled and died, Absalom probably would have wiped them all out eventually, including David himself. It's really hard in human relationships to find true, perfect love and justice where sin exists, which it does every time. In all of our human relationships, sin exists. And it's just really hard to find that perfect meeting place of love and justice. There's always wrongs felt rather than perfect healing. There's always a, a, a pulling up or a falling short in our love of other people. There's often it's conditional, our love for other people. And that's how it is in sinful people. We try to give our all, we try to love with our all, certainly those closest to us, but we fall short. We try to see justice done, we try to apologise when we're wrong, but we don't get it right. And often we don't want to apologise. 
It's hard. It's, it's impossible to get it just right in loving human relationships. We get hurt, we get resentful, we're slow to repent, we're slow to forgive, aren't we? I know I am. And so in verse 8, we have this pitiful excuse for a king's thanks to his valiant army. He dries his eyes, drags himself out of his bedroom, and he makes an appearance at the gate. He doesn't say anything, there's no speech, there's no thanks, there's just an appearance. Is there a wave? I don't know. That's all the people get, and they're thankful for that. They go to see him. Meanwhile, Absalom's army, Absalom, the Israelites, they've scattered. They're terrified. The king's won the battle, still in the wilderness. The Israelites of Absalom, they're kind of fleeing the city and scattering because they don't know what's going to happen next. Now, really interestingly, in verses 9 to 23, there's... There's repentance and forgiveness going on all over the place. It's beautiful. And some of it's more explicit than others, but I want to draw it all out, draw this repentance and forgiveness out. The demise of Absalom means that David's able to make his way back into Jerusalem. So that's what he starts to do here in verse 9. Understandably, Absalom's men, once loyal to David, have run for the hills because they're fearing for their lives. They turned against the king. But David seeks to bring everyone back together. So there's forgiveness there already. And those who turned on David, they wish they hadn't. So I guess there's an implicit repentance from the people. You may remember a few weeks ago, you may not, and that's okay. David, after he was driven out into the wilderness, sent spies into Absalom's kingdom, as such as it is, to inform David of what was going on. Two priests. Zadok and Abiathar, and he, sends, he calls upon them again to spread the good news that the king is coming back and he wants everyone to reunite again. He tells them to call upon the Israelites to come back and he even installs Amasa, Absalom's commander of his army, as, to stay as the leader of his army. So Joab stays the commander of David's army and Amasa, David keeps in place as the leader of Absalom's army, one army with two commanders. So David, for all his faults, and there are many, is a forgiving king who wants to, keep, wants to bring the kingdom back together. You can understand that he doesn't... He's reluctant to make Joab the commander over the whole thing. Joab did murder his son, even though it was the right thing to do. Joab did give him a big spray even though there's a lot of truth. Job remains the commander of one-third, Amasa, two-thirds. Clearly there's remorse on behalf of Israel and forgiveness on the part of David. And in verse 14, we're told, David won over the hearts of the men of Judah, so they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Do you remember a little while ago when I talked about someone gaining the hearts of the people? Absalom. Did it say, did it say Absalom won over the hearts? What did it say? Do you remember? Of the people? Stole their hearts. Absalom stole the hearts of the people. David won over. 
the hearts of the people in, in his love and his forgiveness. Now, interestingly, in verse 16, Shimmy re-enters the story. And he's got a compelling and explicit act of repentance. It's fascinating. Shimmy is the one who hurled insults and dirt, for that matter, at David as he left Jerusalem a couple of chapters ago. And now <laughs> that David's coming back as king, Shimmy's quick to repent of his sin. Is his motivation humility? Is his motivation he's trying to save his skin? I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, hopefully he's turning over a new leaf. But look at verse 18. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king, that means face down on the ground, like laying out, and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord, the king. This is true repentance. There is admission of guilt. There is confession of sin. There is humility. He's prostrate on the ground before the king. And he apologizes and he asks, he pleads for forgiveness. And this ought to be all of our postures before the king of the universe, humbly laying down before him. If Jesus were here, humbly laying down before him, acknowledging our guilt and our sin. We have done wrong against others and against him and pleading for humility. In the midst of this somewhat crazy story, there is this perfect picture of what repentance ought to look like. Humble confession and a, and a begging for forgiveness, knowing that it's not deserved. Our crime is infinitely worse than his because our crime is against God. His crime is against a human. Sure, he's a king, but he's only a human. But not only do we have this wonderful picture of repentance, but also of forgiveness. David's men wanted to kill Shimei. There's lots of people in this story who are quick to want to kill other people. But David says, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. You shall not die. Though your sins deserve it. It's the same promise that the king of the universe makes to all who put their trust in Jesus. You shall not die. And that is a promise. In John 3 we read, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They shall not die. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Repentance is required and faith in the Lord Jesus. Today we've seen how a father's love corrupted his thinking and resulted in a failure to see the good in the justice that was done. 
That is the complication of human relationships. We've seen that same father show mercy in response to repentance. We've seen how human relationships are messy in this story. And we've seen how human relationships are messy in our own lives, haven't we? It's really hard to get justice right. In your marriage, with your kids, with your family, there's hurts and there's wrongs and there's not forgiveness and there's not repentance and there's more hurt and we all know the messiness and brokenness of family relationships where justice and love are just not, we haven't got it right. And the same in friendships, we get it wrong. We don't get the justice right, we don't get the love right. It's messy. But it's not messy in the Godhead. God the Father loves his one and only son, Jesus, perfectly. Edie, there's a book in my bag, a thick white book. Can you find it for me? It's in the main bit. Thanks, sweetie. God the Father loves his one and only son, Jesus, who's truly God himself, perfectly and eternally. That's it. In the Holy Spirit. Thanks, babe. Loves him perfectly and eternally in the Holy Spirit. Perfect love. At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, a voice rang from heaven and said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And in John chapter 5, we have this extraordinary explanation of the great love of the Father for the Son shown forth in what the Father does for the Son. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. God the Father's entire being dwells intimately in the Son and has done so for all eternity. As the Father works, so the Son works, because the Father loves the Son and gives all authority to the Son to, to work in his name. The Father holds nothing back from the Son, but gives him his all in eternity. Always has, always will. And he's given him all authority to judge the world in time and space. The Father loves the Son. His love is perfect. It is 100% for his son, both in eternity and in our world, in our time and space. And it's this perfect sinless son that the father must pour out his wrath on that we deserve because the father not only loves the son, the father loves us. Absalom was absolutely guilty and deserving of death. 
And yet the grief of his father is real and deep and very moving. How much more the grief of the eternal father for his eternal, begotten and innocent son caused by us in our sin. But because of his love for us, Jesus was willing to die. David said, if only I could have taken your place, Absalom, my son, my son, despite his guilt and hatred for his father. God the Father says, I'm sending my beloved son to take your place. I can do that. I'm sending my son to take your place even though he does not deserve death. We deserve death. Despite our hatred and rebellion for his loving Holy Father, God sends his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus willingly dies in our place, facing his father's wrath in the process that was meant for us. This is perfect love and perfect justice. There's a great book called Pierce for Our Transgressions that digs into the cross in all its complexity and splendor. And the author writes this, Jesus understands the cross as his Father's will for him, but does not... Sorry, there we go. But does not perceive any conflict between this task and his Father's love for him. He knows that his Father's purposes are good, Indeed, the cross is the path by which Jesus will enter his heavenly glory, a glory for which his Father destined him. There's no tension. There's no conflict between love and justice at the cross because the Father and the Son are perfect. Now, what does this mean for us then? What does all this mean for us? This means we ought to be compelled, like just diving towards God in repentance and mercy, just as Shimi did towards David. The Father loves the Son into eternity past and eternity future perfectly, and that same love is poured out on us. That same love is offered freely to us if we will repent of our sin and turn to him in humility. We can come to God with absolute confidence that justice is perfectly served and love is unreserved and wholehearted and will never be taken back. And we can, there's no human relationship we can come to with that sort of confidence. That love will be unreserved and perfect and never taken back. And there's no courtroom we can enter where justice will perfectly be seen and done as the heavenly courtroom. There's always a degree of injustice in human relationships, always some unconditional love going around. The Father's love for the Son ought to compel us to heartfelt repentance with great joy and enthusiasm, knowing that we will be forgiven. We will enter into this eternal relationship of love. That is a promise. We are called up into Christ 
in the Godhead, seated in the heavenly realms, we're told, in Christ, through repentance and faith in Jesus, now and forevermore. How good is that? If you have not repented of your sins to God, can I invite you now? Sit quietly, close your eyes if you want, and pray. Apologize for your sins. Thank God for Jesus. Ask for forgiveness and know that you have it. God is listening always and in love he's eager to forgive you. And because of Jesus' death, he's able to truly forgive you for all your sins, past, present and future, once for all. Because of God, because of the Son, in the Spirit, justice and love can be found. Sins are not swept under the carpet. They're found. Now, the second great challenge, I think, for us, are we now compelled to repentance with one another? In our families, in our church. It's the same God, the same gospel, the same grace, the same love that compels us to repentance to the Father or to compel us to repentance and forgiveness with one another. I think, I think all too often we, we hurt each other, maybe just a little bit. We say something we should have, we're a bit flippant. We do this all the time. But we don't say anything. We get hurt, we don't say anything. We just kind of suck it up. We bottle it and bottle it rather than have a conversation. I think maybe it's because we're too nice to say anything. We're worried we're going to hurt the other person. We think we can just, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll just, you know, let it go. But we don't let it go. Inadvertently, we actually start to erode our relationship with that person, be it our spouse, our kids, or a brother or sister at church. The relationship actually starts to erode when hurt is done and repentance and forgiveness aren't found. It starts to break down. I won't say anything. I'll pretend I can just let it go when actually, subconsciously, I'm actually now more guarded around that person than I was before. Subconsciously, I'm actually avoiding that person at morning tea. Our church is big enough. You can do that now. Can just avoid that person. The bigger our church gets, the easier it gets to avoid one another and the, the, the danger grows. But there can be divisions, hurts, lack of repentance, lack of forgiveness. That's not Christian. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died to break down the dividing wall of hostility, firstly between us and God, but also between us and one another so that we can be united together in Christ. Recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I was given, just before our holidays, I was given the immense blessing of sitting down with a beloved partner of this church and this person lovingly, graciously explained to me how I had hurt them some time ago. I had said some unhelpful things. I hadn't cared for them when I really should have, as well as I could have. I didn't do anything terrible. I say anything terrible. 
but I wasn't as loving as I should have been. And I said some things that were a little bit careless. And I hurt them. Don't try and figure out who it was. doesn't matter who it was. Now, it took a lot of courage from this person to, to do this. And I did not feel attacked. And I didn't feel defensive. They told me how much they appreciate me, how much they care for me. And they also told me how I'd hurt them. And... I had the wonderful opportunity and blessing of being able to repent of my hurt and apologise. And so I can totally see how that would have hurt. I'm really sorry. I did that and said that and failed to do that. And they had the opportunity and blessing of saying, You're for- I forgive you. It's okay. I understand. This was happening, that was happening. And I really appreciate your apology. Before I hurt them, our relationship was really good. After I hurt them, our relationship was not as good. After we had this conversation and there was repentance and there was forgiveness, our relationship is better than it has ever been. And that's the promise that's held out by our loving Father in Christ. And the model is the Father's love for the Son and the relationship with the Son. That's the relationship we enjoy with God because we're in Christ. It's not dependent on us. But with one another, it's dependent on us, but we have this example and we have this tool, we have this way, we have the Holy Spirit working in us. We all live by the grace of God. No one can lord it over anyone else and say, I'm better than you, least of all me. No one's better than anybody else. We all live by the grace of God. We're all forgiven through faith in Jesus, just the same. But we're also all sinners still. Forgiven sinners, if our trust is in Jesus, but sinners still. We will continue to hurt one another from time to time, I promise. (laughs) We will hurt one another. I will probably hurt you at some point. I'll try really hard not to, but I might make a mistake, as I did. But we're called to bear with one another. We're called to live in close proximity as a church family and the result is we do hurt each other from time to time. But that's a blessing because it creates an opportunity for a conversation and repentance and forgiveness and a strengthening of that relationship so that it's better than it ever was before, just as God intended. What a joy it is to be a church but is in healthy relationship with God, but also with one another as we look forward to the return of our King. I want you to take a quick moment now on your own. I want you to consider the little hurts, maybe not the big ones in public. Consider the little hurts in your family or your church, perhaps this past week, perhaps this past year, People may have said something, done something that hurt you a little bit. And I want you to pray in the quiet of your mind for courage to confront that person in love and have a conversation. Pray that they'll repent of their sin and ask for courage to forgive them. Just take a quiet moment now for a minute. Reflect on ways you might have been hurt. Pray for courage to forgive.
me one minute. I'm going to pray for all of us. Please join me as I pray for us all. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your love poured out on your Son in the Spirit for all eternity. We thank you for your love poured out on us. Be willing to send your Son into the world born of a woman, that he would die, that he would face wrath from you meant for us that he would take the punishment so that justice might be done and love might be shown. And we thank you for his glorious resurrection and the new life that we live in Christ as followers of him. We thank you for the Holy Spirit in us that gives us the strength and the courage and the ability to be able to lovingly confront one another in our failings and our wrongs. Help us to do this for the sake of all of our relationships, that our relationships might be strengthened. Give us courage to share when we've been hurt. Give us courage to confess when we've done wrong. And give us the humble grace to forgive when someone repents of their hurts against us. For those in the room, Lord, who do not yet bow the knee to Jesus as their loving King, we pray that you reveal to them your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and justice. They'll be compelled to repent, to say sorry for their sin, to ask for forgiveness, knowing they receive it fully from you, willingly and joyfully, if they will but ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.